Rethinking healthcare takes more than disruption. It takes more than thought leaders. It takes change makers and doers. That's who we'll be speaking to on the Healthcare Rethink podcast, giving you, our dedicated listeners, a rich body of insights to make your own change. This is the Healthcare Rethink podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Jonathan Wick, and this is the Healthcare Rethink podcast. Uh, I am honored to have Brad Tennerman, VP of Enterprise Revenue Cycle, with me here at Banner. Um, we're going to talk about all kinds of stuff. Brad and I know each other. Um, uh, he wrote the forward in one of my books. I was very honored to do that. He also has used my books in some of his training with his staff. Um, he's been around the block. He, he spent some time at various organizations, which we'll talk about. But he is one of my good friends. I, I, I He actually has some good singing voice as well, which we might talk about in a minute. Uh, and we're really going to just rap about, you know, what's going on at Banner? Um, what has Brad seen in the market in terms of where we're at? Hospitals have got a lot of headwinds going into next year, I think. And we're just going to talk about tech and, and where we're at. And Brad, welcome. Thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, it's great to be here. Cool. We'll, we'll go into like uh, just some personal stuff now. You don't have to go too deep, but uh, you know, where do you go to school and uh, where are you living now and, and what, what's up with you? Yeah, well, I, I grew up in the Atlanta area in suburbs of, of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, went to college at the University of Tennessee. So grew up a, a, a Southern boy, um, got into consulting earlier in, in my career and traveled quite a bit, mostly up in the Northeast. Uh, spent time in Boston, New York, Philly, D.C. area. So we got to know the Northeast part of the United States and early consulting areas. And uh, yeah, that was my early, early part of my life. Nice. How about career stuff? Like, uh, where'd you get your start in healthcare? What brought you to this wonderful industry industry that stresses us out? And I'm um, kind of walk through career path a little bit for me. Yeah, I love to. Um, so I had, I had family in, in uh, healthcare. I had an uncle specifically that uh, was in hospital administration um, that kind of helped guide my career. You don't necessarily listen to your parents, but you'll listen to your <laughs> someone else. So I was listening to him. He seemed to have a good life and um, doing well for himself and. Uh, I like the connection to the, you know, healthcare and the community. So he helped kind of guide me through college and the early, early career in healthcare. Uh, so when I was getting out of college, we talked about, do you go work for a health system or does it make more sense to go into consulting, something along those lines. So ultimately decided consulting, you'd see more faster. Uh, right. So that's we got into that. So um, work for some smaller firms like Stockamp, uh, work for some larger firms like Ernst & Young. Um, Help and then we. I, I took a um, um, little sidebar into healthcare technology. I worked for Eclipsis, which is now Allscripts. Yeah, I worked on the technology platforms and revenue cycle. So that was a good foray into understanding how technology works, how it's built, databases, integration points, all all of that. Um, and so that was a great part of my career. But outsourcing became a thing, uh, and after I'd been in healthcare for about I don't know 12, 13 years, so the creators started to. Um, come um, to the market. Uh, Tenet had brought Conifer to the market and then Optum brought, um, you know, to the market using, you know, a relationship with Dignity. Um, so I had people that I'd worked with at Ernst & Young and at Stockamp that started uh, some of the original founders of Accretive. So I did join Accretive after I left um, the technology realm and got my first um, um, foray into outsourcing, learned quite a bit in that area, took on different leadership roles and I'll kind of build that company up a bit. I certainly wasn't a founder, but I think I did leave my mark on that, that organization. Learned a lot about measurement models and contracts and what makes a good 
relationship. And of course, Accretive had a few early missteps some right. you know, there's no new recognition measuring model and, you know, stuff like in compliance. Um, so I moved on to uh, Optum. So Optum was um, acquiring different services and technologies at that point in time and looking to stitch it together into an end-to-end revenue cycle solution. So they recruited me to help kind of create that end-to-end revenue cycle solution. Um, spent uh, a few years kind of building that outsourcing solution out. Um, and uh, ultimately, Dignity took notice and was interested in an equity stake. And that kind of took Optum from dabbling in that space to being a player in that space and renamed it, spun it out as Optum 360. Um, so having said that, I'd, I'd done a lot of consulting, worked in technology outsourcing. So I had told health systems how to do their job for a long time. <laughs> it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, the reason I got into healthcare is because I, I did want to be um, part of a health system, be part of a community and serve those communities that I lived in. So uh, I had a relationship with a um, senior vice president at, at Banner through the Dignity Project uh, with Optum 360. He recruited me over to Banner, and it just seemed like the perfect timing, the perfect fit for me to work for a health system, bring what I'd learned, um, the technology information, the outsourcing tactics, the consulting um, uh, you know, the discipline that I have, and brought it to Banner. And it, so I've been at Banner just over five years now. Been, it's been a great run so far. Nice. Five years. Boy, that went by. It's funny. Our careers are like exactly opposite. Like I started as like a hospital transporter to get into it and then like made like no money and, and, and then slowly worked my way up to a role you have now and then worked for it. You did the opposite. I would argue you probably made a lot of money (laughs) (laughs) consulting and then, you know, came across at that level from all that experience. That's just a really nice bent strength. Um, no wonder we get along. We kind of complement each other with, uh, with our career paths. It's like we're two puzzle pieces. Um, that's great. Um, you know, what types of books are you reading and, and what, what's up there? Like, like uh, what, what kind of authors would you recommend to our audience uh, uh, on things that have helped you either personally or professionally? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I, you know I, I'm still an old newspaper guy. I get the Wall Street Journal awesome. anymore. Your journal guy. I, mean, I like to flip through that. So yep. I, I get, you know, my business news um, from there. I, I definitely read, read Becker's um, magazine. I read HFM. I, your books are, not to plug it, but really some some strong books that I have used with my leadership team. You know, most recently I got into, uh, or went back to an old book that was recommended by a couple of colleagues called Atlas Shrugged. It was nice. published, published in the 1950s. And it's an interesting story about the, the struggle between capitalism, socialism, feminism, women in the, in the workplace. Um, yeah, yeah. Industry in, in general. So it's a really, really cool book that I had overlooked, I knew, I think it was popular in the eighties and nineties, even though it was yeah. written in the, the fifties, but still very valid today and the, and the challenges that they talked through. So that's what I'm reading right now. That's cool. That's cool. Yes. Uh, some advice, man, you know, try to read more of that, less of the journal. You might be a happier guy. <laughs> Absolutely. That's very true. <laughs> cool. That's awesome. You know, what do you do for fun? What's, uh, what's some of your hobbies and, uh, you know, how do you keep yourself happy outside of work? Man, I'm, yeah, I don't sit down very often. So I've got a lot of little little hobbies. Um, you know, I, I, I like to exercise, run. I haven't played soccer, you know, organized since COVID, but I, I grew up playing soccer and still like to play in men's leagues. I love old cars. I have several old cars that I, that I, I, I tinker with. I like working around the house, like carpentry. Um, so, and I've got three boys, so they definitely keep me, keep me busy, but 
Yeah, not a lot of time to sit down, relax. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm into soccer too. We'll have to make a bet on the World Cup. My uh, my son's a big Messi fan. He's got the jersey and um, he's rooting for Argentina. We'll see where they end up. And um, yeah, uh, uh, and I played soccer as well. I don't know if you knew that. I uh, I played uh, in high school and collegiately a little bit also. So yeah, we're yeah. off uh, one of these times. And uh, <laughs> what position did you play? Were you a forward or did you play defense or did you count all over? I was uh, well. The game evolved over the years, but I started out as like a striker and right winger, and then as the game evolved, the midfielder was more important. So I played center mid and right mid. Uh, we faced each other on the field. I was primarily defense, so and I was yeah. a wall dude. There was no way you were going to get by me. You remind me of some people I've had to deal with. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, that's great. Well, let's 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 transition a little bit into kind of what Banner's up to. Tell us a little bit about Banner. Help educate the listeners on on what's going on there and, and what Banner's health kind of strategy and philosophy is and how your revenue management's uh, enhancing or averting that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, big question. Um, so Banner is, um, I think we're around, we're probably pushing 13 billion. Um, right. And some of that is in provider. Some of that is in payer. I think it's probably two and a half billion in, in payer, the balance in, in provider. Uh, 32 hospitals across six states, uh, integrated delivery, everything from urgent care, you know, home health, hospice, um, the hospitals are very diverse as well. We have three academic hospitals. We have some large community hospitals, some big boys, and then we have safety net, uh, critical access hospitals. So we're a pretty good cross section of U.S. healthcare, frankly, across many states and, and dealing with the regulatory requirements in different states and just seeing patients in all the different dimensions that you can. So pretty diverse um, health system. I think like a lot of health systems are trying to balance payer and provider. Because you kind of need that that yin and yang when the you know provider business is killing it, the payers take it you know in in the bottom line and, and vice vice versa. So I think they're trying to balance out um, you know building the portfolio on on the payer side a little bit more. Which on the revenue cycle side, we need to be aware of that so we can work on payer provider collaboration opportunities within our own organization. So that's a, that's a bit about Banner. Cool. Yeah, let's explore that a minute. I think you and and Jamie Davis, who I also know really well. Um, and presented with her at Banner. A brilliant lady was on the cover of HFM a couple months ago. I still need to get that signed. I'm going to try to drag that with me <laughs> next time I go to an event and, and tease her. Um, but yeah, you're one of the few that actually is showing yeah. some love for payers um, that I talked about. <laughs> I think that would be interesting to kind of walk through our listeners on that. Like, like, why do you think payer provider collaboration is important? And what is the work you and Jamie are doing in that area? And why do you think that's the future Instead of what you mostly see is kind of this disdain and I can't trust you as far as I can throw you and um, I'm not giving you any information, Payer. You can pull it from my cold dead hand is what I hear from a lot of executives right now. But I love this collaboration talk. Let's get into that. Yes, yeah, so there's a lot to unpack here. Um, but I've worked on, in my consulting years, I worked on the Payer side. So I, I, yeah. I, I've done claims audits and process audits. So I have a sense of how Payers run and like the mirror image of of the revenue cycle side of the house. Um I mean, transactionally, it's difficult on both sides of the house. Um, contractually, it's difficult on, on both sides of the house. Um, I think when we, if you start talking in, uh, what is the data really saying? I think you can you can bridge a lot of gaps between um, the payers and, and providers. I don't think our payers are necessarily doing anything um, um, that is inappropriate, but I think it can come across that way if you're not understanding the, the relationship correctly. So for instance, an interesting thing now that we had, we had um, 
uh, price transparency on the payer side or on the provider side um, a couple of years ago. And now this year we're coming out with rate transparency. Totally. Uh, we can see the correlation between our rates and the initial denials or the fights that we have with payers. The payers that we have negotiated the highest rates on are the ones that, you know, the ones that are high in the market are the ones that we get the most pushback on, <laughs> which kind of makes sense. Uh, totally. You've never been able to see both sides of, of that story before. Um, but no, I, I don't, I don't think they're doing anything evil. Um, oh. I think when I get down to it, I understand where they push back and why they push back at times. But then again, the payer market's complicated because each region could be a little, a little bit different. Um, so we are in, we are a payer. Um, we, we are in the, uh, Medicare, Medicaid space. We're also in the commercial space, not as big as some other major health systems out there. I think they're really pushing Hard on that. We're not like a Kaiser where it's, you know, well balanced and at IDM. Yeah. But we're, we're bigger. Some, we have more than some others, but um, I think you need to have that payer side as we talked about before for the yin and the yang side. But so much is moving to Medicare Advantage. If you're not in that space, you're going to lose those for those populations. Um, so we are, uh, have a tight re relationship with Aetna. Uh, I've tried to have tighter relationship with Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Cigna, and United Health Group as well. But Aetna has been the one that's played the nicest so far. So we have formal initiatives or what we call frictionless billing, but we have kind of phase one and phase two of what we're doing with Aetna. Um, first thing is just make it more pleasing for the for the patient. Um, so we've done a lot in that space. Combining an EOB with a statement is one simple thing that we did because you could get the, you get those two documents and they don't match. You don't understand what an EOB is. Uh, so we've, we've compressed those into a single, single statement. We have a... Um, customer service unit that's designed just for for Aetna people so they don't get mixed up with, with with other areas. A few innovative things we've done, we have an app that's called um, um, a patient concierge app. So when you get your, your bill, you can fire up this app and it brings an avatar out that walks you through your bill. Literally, it's standing on top of your bill and you can touch different parts of the bill and the avatar will talk to you about the bill. We created explainer videos for some of the more complicated parts of, of revenue cycle and healthcare that Give you a little 60 minute animated shorts that kind of take a complicated topic and help you understand what's a copay, what's a coded up, what's coinsurance, why might your estimate not match the final bill, stuff, stuff like that. And the last, I would call kind of innovative thing we've done is um, we got some inspiration from like Domino's Pizza and Amazon. I'm like, where's my pizza or where's my package? Well, in healthcare space, kind of you, you send the bill out or you go, you, you go have a visit or, or you have a clinical encounter and then where's the bill or am I going to get billed and is it going to come up, show up in three weeks or a month or six months? And so we, there's kind of that, that black box of, I don't know what's happening right now. So we are, we're taking those key um, triggering milestone events and, and putting them into an, an outward facing um, basically statement tracker. So a patient can, can tell once they've, they've been to the doctor or had their visit, what's going on with the adjudication of their claim and why hasn't it shown up? Did it go to zero and I'm not going to see one or we're still working it out and expect it in, in the future? So we, we saw like that was kind of a transparency area. So that's kind of our phase one approach that we've gotten through so far. And so far we, we've we gotten um, um, promoter score. There our first um, uh, nice. reaction to this has come out and we are definitely um, several standard deviations above our baseline awesome. already within, within just six months. So that's been a positive so far. That's great. Um, phase two is getting much more integrated with a payer. Um, you know, when when you're running your own plans or even a Medicare Advantage plan, you're managing lives. So population health becomes a bigger component of the of the collaboration. 
and being able to share data um, makes that work better. So if you can think of an example on the front end, when you're registering a patient and making sure you have that eligibility correct, if you can peek into the payer system and just double check, you can also see the deductibles, co-pays, you can make sure you understand the medical necessity components. So having an API or at least a portal where you can see that data, you don't have to buy it from a third party. If you get an auth, you can put the auth number of both of them so they tie and lock. Um, you can get props when you're doing scheduling on population health items, like you know, getting vaccinations, colonoscopies, mammographies, things like that, that you can bring into that scheduling conversation. It's like, well, you're going to be here for that. Why don't you get these two things while, while you're there? Linking that together with a pair can create uh, a lot of power. But also on the back end, you think about, we have a billing editor. They have an adjudication editor. Um, we have a contract management system. So do they. Can we use the same one? Can we sign off on the same billing editor and say, if it clears these edits, we're good. All uh, right. And if and once it runs through these con contract terms, we've both signed off, they're accurate. This thing's done. Uh, can you literally uh, stop the billing and denial component and come down to a single adjudication group and cut the costs out in all those all those places as well? That's our phase two approach. So we're, we're pushing that through kind of funding phases with our senior leadership team, both on the Aetna side and the Banner side hoping to push that project forwarding to one in 2023. It's exciting stuff, Brad. I mean, I don't think there's anybody that I'm aware of that's innovating, um, at least at that level, and that kind of has a strategic plan. You know, that's there. You hear this in pockets. I think Epic, you know, has a portal. I know you guys are participating in that as well, a payer kind of platform to where data is being shared. Um, I get the opposite end of the spectrum of like, I don't think our payers have any business looking at our records unless it involves payment and those types of things. But you know, as you're talking to other, you know, colleagues or peers in the market, what do you, or what advice do you have for them in terms of getting to this place to get them out of this sea of hate to a sea of collaboration? Yeah. <laughs> like, what is that first step to kind of move towards this payer provider collaboration? I think people would appreciate that. You know, most people I talk to about this concept are like, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it, it's good for the patient. It's good for the payer. Good for the provider. You can cut costs out. You can provide a better product, more entitlements, less money, all that. So everybody I talk to feels like this makes sense, but that collaboration with a payer is really hard to get done. So I, I feel like we just need to prove the concept and stop talking about it. And that's what I'm trying to do because it's, it's enough about the skepticism. Let's just do it. And if I'm right, I'm right. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. We're about to find out. I, I think you're going to be right. I, you know, I'm not a, a gambler, but you know, if you were on the wheel, I'd put my my chips in your number, man. I think that you're a smart guy. You got a smart team. Um, there's a lot of dollars here. You guys are making a big bet on it too, right? And um, yeah. and uh, you don't, you know, you don't have to spend discretionary income to kind of mess around with risky things. Um, the expense side of this must make a lot of sense. Um, on both sides to be able to get to a common goal. And I do think it's the future. I think, you know, there's been a lot of siloed workflows and things, and um, I'm hopeful for you. I hope Banner's the tip of the spear and Aetna for that matter. And uh, it could get those Uniteds and, and Cygnas and Humanas and stuff in gear to, to kind of get moving. That's great. Congrats and um, keep us posted. We might have another series later or another podcast to get an update from you as we go forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You bet. Uh, let's talk about... Um, you know, hospital profitability, um, you don't have to get into specifics with Banner. I think people can find that stuff out if they wanted to. But um, I released a financial report. I'm happy for the listeners to kind of get that in December. I shipped it to you, Brad, as well. Um, it looks pretty stormy um, into, into 2023 for a lot of hospitals. 
depends on your community. You and I talked and we were at Becker's a little bit too, just about how it depends on kind of how well you were doing before, during, and kind of after the pandemic and whether you had stuff squirreled away and had a strategic plan to kind of handle that stuff or you were, you know, you know, playing it by wire. You know, what advice do you have for hospitals right now and revenue cycles to kind of navigate the storm, to use a cliche? Because I think a storm's coming. And uh, and if you don't have your ducks in a row, um, you're going to see hospitals that have fractured, health systems that have fractured, really start to open up those cracks. So what are you suggesting if you were in a different financial position or maybe Banner's looking at those cracks today? Yeah, so this armchair quarterback time. This is fun. Right, totally. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we went through two years of a pandemic and a lot of disruption. You know, people work from home. Um, you know, the the uh, traveling nurse situation was a, was a big one. Um, and we did a lot of deviations from our normal business to try to accommodate the situation that, that we were we were dealing with. You know, one bit of advice I would give, and, and this was probably getting a little outside of my revenue cycle area, but one thing that that I'm seeing is um, there's an opportunity to capitalize and there's an opportunity to save money and those don't necessarily go together. So uh, what I mean by that is, you know, you're looking at your costs to deliver care, particularly in that um, that traveling nurse situation where a lot of people are like, enough's enough, we're cutting that out. We're not, we're going to reduce our inflow of patients or just, you know, move, move to the medical side, put surgical on, on pause for a little bit, shut down some of the outpatient stuff. Let's survive this until the costs come back under control. Right. The problem with that strategy is physicians are the key to everything we do. And they're also that massive referral patterns that they have, particularly in the surgical area. If you start to limit their ability to deliver care, particularly in the surgery area, they're going to find another path of least resistance. So there are there are clear winners and losers here where people have cut costs because that uh, labor was too high and they were potentially losing money. And those referral patterns have changed. And there's other people that did not do that and have picked up market share from that. So I, th- I think that was a real interesting, important lesson for different health systems where market share literally shifted during a very um, turbulent time. Um, and those relationships and those those referral patterns take years to develop and they can change very, very rapidly. So I would certainly caution around cutting too hard during a period of instability because those doctors have to make money too and they're going to find a place to, to make it, uh, whether you're helping them or not. Um, so that's just something I saw that kind of came out of the pandemic. If you're not playing the work from home game and playing it well, uh, finding a way to create a, a great culture and, and, and keep that tie with, with your, your team. Uh, I, I don't think going back to the office the way it was before is going to happen in the next two or three years. It might slowly work back to that over time. Uh, who's, who's to say, um, but I think there's a lot of people that, that that's a new expectation and you need to figure out how to do that, that really well. I think those are great insights. I think, you know, the, I think I shipped you a volume report too, and you kind of saw that trough when the Surgeon General turned the the, the faucet off in, in March of 2020, and there were hospitals like yourself and systems um, out there that are like, well, hey, we can do patients. Like, we aren't having a surge right now. I think the government and the industry kind of learned that. And to your point, that disrupted a lot of referral patterns where there's a lot of hospitals now trying to figure that out. And then with this labor crisis that's happening, um, which I want to talk about here in a minute too, and how Banner's handling that. It 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 it's causing this kind of shell game. Do I, you know, ramp stuff down? And and what I'm hearing you say is be careful with that because 
you know, if you're not continually engaged in that, you know, your physicians and your referral patterns are going to migrate to another system or independent. And then you may never get that volume back if you siphon it off now. Um, that's huge. And I think um, CFOs are really struggling with that. Do I bet on keeping my volumes up and those patients coming or do I come down because I can't afford the premium labor or where we're at? And I'm starting to see that kind of stabilize. And I, I bet Banner has as well. Um, labor kind of was this nasty, nasty mess um, this year. And, and it seems to come to calm down. And, and um, I, I really appreciate that point about being careful with where you're at. Let's talk about labor for a minute. Like, I love the strategy of playing the work from home game, but what other things specifically like revenue management has Banner done to kind of stop the bleeding there? Or have you even had any bleeding? Have you have you experienced labor shortages on the revenue management side? You know, I think we've weathered it better than most for, okay. for several reasons. Um, one is, is we took work from home very seriously. Yeah. And and not not only for the pandemic, for the but for the future state and really thinking ahead of how do we keep these people engaged. We do have, you know, productivity, quality, but it's way more than that. You, you don't, it's not just about making sure that their quality and productivity, that they need to feel part of a health system. And that gets harder and harder to do when you're not commingling with, with staff. So investments in, in travel, investments in, in being part of organizations like like HFMA, going to Becker's, things like that, really encouraging them to get out and, and, and work with their peers, get certifications um, um, to tie them together and tie them to us. Um, so that, that's one, um, we do utilize from my outsourcing days, there's core competencies and there's things that you should probably look for vendors to do. Um, things like low ballots, um, is definitely a strategy onshore, offshore. So we look at where our cost to collect is and how, what level can we do in-house at paying? And then if a vendor can do it for lower cost, that's where we're going to go. So we have kind of a line of demarcation of where we'll send things to a, to a vendor and then we'll allow things offshore. Once they've gone through the compliance and you know attestation process, we send things off, offshore to overall keep our cost to collect where it needs to be. And the third thing, and everyone's um, investing in the space is automation and bots. Totally. You know, you know Jamie and uh, Davis on my team is leads up that team as, as well as many other things. Um, We've gotten good at doing it internally. We looked for vendor partners and help in that space and struggled finding a, the right partner to do that. So we've ultimately done a lot of it in-house. I'll call it a, a strategy, but a risky one because I, I think we've moved a lot to bots and we've had some very successful bots. But once you get reliant on those, if you're not carrying, feeding for them and monitoring them, if they break, you're in a really bad spot. So we, we've, de- we've, we've moved, moved into it very, very carefully to make sure that the bots that we turn on are solid. They have a monitoring, they have a backup plan on all those because they have saved this money and they have created efficiency, but they're still a, a nervous liability for me as we as we move into that space because we're not professionals in that space. We're a health system trying to out. So we got to be Yeah, robotics and automation, I do get that answer quite a bit when I ask that question. And I think your point about Treating them like a house plant is probably a good one, not to minimize what you're saying, but you got to water them and care for them and put them in the sun and, and take a look at them and talk to them and make sure they don't wither and die because a lot of your processes will will go there. And having a good partner with those types of things, I think, is very, very important as you look at RPA. Finn Thrive's trying to enhance a lot of its solutions um, and adding automation where we can because we just realize that, you know, even if we're finding things with solutions or where we're at, um, there's still this human element of resubmitting a claim or rechecking eligibility or or um, loading the new coverage. And 
every piece of that involves a human touch in revenue management, no matter what you're doing. Um, if you can't automate it, that's great. And I kind of call it the two-headed uh, or two-double-edged sword or, or double-edged wand, if you will. One, it, it gets people back, like you talked about at the beginning, it gets people back to why they got into this business. They didn't want to get on the horn into healthcare to do kind of repetitive tasks and be on the horn with a payer for 20 minutes about an authorization or rechecking eligibility, those types of things. So it helps them have like a better day at work. It's not like this sucky place to go to work. Automates that and have a robot do that and then let them talk to patients and help them navigate their bills and those types of things. So it's kind of a double-edged thing in that it helps productivity by automating things and also keeps your staff kind of happier. Maybe they'll hang out a little bit longer and really enjoy the work they're doing. So uh, um, I applaud you and Banner and, and Jamie's <laughs> efforts. If you haven't read that article in uh, HFM, I'll plug it for Jamie. It's it's fascinating to talk about how they built that farm and really put a lot of governance around it to keep it successful, to make sure that the the plants are growing in the window like they should be. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Um, we're running close on time here. I'll put a couple other questions for you. Just let's talk about patients for a minute and consumers. Yeah. I, I know Banner's done a lot of work there too. Um, you mentioned the word frictionless, which is one of my favorites when it comes to that. Some of the things you've done with statements and, <clears throat> and chat bots and avatars. Let's walk through that. I think healthcare is not getting any cheaper. Um, bills aren't getting any simpler. What is Banner doing to kind of meet the patient as payer, to coin my term? And and what are some innovations there that you could share with our audience? Yeah, we did something a little bit different in this space. Um, you kind of define the patient financial experience. So any part of the revenue cycle that has that direct patient interaction. So we created a patient balance management um, operating unit uh, within Banner. And their responsibility is front to back from converting a, a self-pay patient to a paying source, the self-pay pricing, the financial assistance policies, the payment plans, the package plans, credit, all those things on the front end. On the back end, you pick up with customer service. Um, how do you make that as, as quick and easy as possible? That transition from in-house um, you know, pre-collect to bad debt can be an, an ugly transition. So we've done right. some innovative things to tie pre-collect and bad debt together. So when a patient calls, you can see you know, the entire continuum of their bill. Um, you know, just to, to dive into that a bit, a big dissatisfier is we, we combine bills because people ask to have their, their bills combined. When a, totally. Everything's going to ban like a credit card statement. But if you go urgent care, emergency, inpatient, physical therapy, and, and down the line, those, those dates are moving at different si dunning cycles. So oh. you, can get a you can get a statement that shows all of them on there for one month, and then a couple could fall off, and the balance comes down mm -hmm. like, hey, I didn't do anything, and it's less. But the reality is it's moved on to bad debt, and then they're angry. Uh, right. So the way we, we've constructed it is where you can have a, a a current and then delinquent and a single number and a single link where you can go deal with those. Those agents identify themselves as debt collectors, whether it's pre-collect or bad debt, so they can look on both sides of the fence, potentially pull things from bad debt back into the pre-collect. Um, you know, we do offer credit um, in-house. It's shorter term, um, no interest. And we have a, a credit vendor that we use for longer term, no interest. Obviously, we take a little bit of a haircut to to offer that to patients. Right. But we are trying to think about their entire experience front to back. Um, so that crew is is trying to minimize our, our self-pay exposure, it, it, you know, extract our entitled reimbursement to lowest cost with the highest net promoter scores that we can get. And they're doing a really good job. I think creating a focus that's horizontal there, as opposed to you kind of dabble with it here, dabble with it here, dabble with it there in different operating units, 
doesn't work well that way. But if you tie it all together, it's better for the patient and it's much better for our performance. I agree. I think, you know, your pizza tracker thing's brilliant. I'm a Domino's guy. I'll, I'll give them a plug. I mean, when my wife's out of town, it's the first thing we do. The boys and I have to order pizza because it's like contraband in our house otherwise. And stop. What's up? We'll get on there. And I love the little tracker because I'll go do some sort of chore or something as I'm waiting for that. And I think the same goes with the claims, right? And matching EOBs to statements is huge. And it's hard to navigate that. And, and you know, I, I've had healthcare issue. I even work at the hospital. It's confusing to me sometimes. And I consider myself an expert. I'm like, and I'll look at my wife will hand me things. I'm like, nah, you don't have to pay attention to that. She's like, why not? I'm like, cause you're going to get another three of them in the mail. <laughs> that type of stuff's frustrating and confusing. So I, I think it's great that you've looked at that holistically. And I, I know a lot of hospitals are and health systems as well, kind of looking at what is it that we can make simpler frictionless to where people get it like any other industry, you know, pan for stuff on Amazon or boarding a plane or ordering a pizza you know it should be interactive like that it shouldn't be the siloed i gotta call five different people um i should be getting stuff in the mail hopefully um that type of thing to where it, it's better um i'm gonna close this out here i think really quick you know I, i'm gonna have one easy question and then one fun question for you but the the easy one is 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 the time machine you did the armchair quarterback but let's do time machine um if you could go back five years at banner um since you've been there five you know, you, you, that's a good tenure at, a, at a, an organization for a role like yourself. So congratulations. <laughs> have to keep you around, um, which is great. You know, what, what, what would you have done differently? What were some things you learned in that journey that, that if you could go back, what would you change? Yeah. Uh, so I, I joined Banner to do a modernization and a transformation. So we had, you know, probably at this point over 40 projects or what I call part of our playbook. There's different plays that, that we run and, you know, a lot of them do really well. And then there's a couple of flops, you know, right. a couple that just don't, don't go well. Um, so I, I've, I've used that, a similar playbook and outsourcing and now using it for banner. So, so I'm getting better information every time I run those plays on what works and what doesn't work. And is the environment changing that play should just be tossed out in the playbook. So, I, so I learn constantly on, on what works and what doesn't work. There's always gotchas. Like we, we, we are pursuing computer assisted coding on the ambulatory side. And we didn't realize the configuration problems that we had when our host systems were going to be such a problem. There, we blew through the acute care. We, you know, did um, computer assisted in the CDI program, and it went through without a hitch and creating great results so far. But still, just chugging away at the at the acute care side. So I I, I think um, I'm always refining what I will do and how I will do it based on those past experiences and those past plays I did. You can't predict things like COVID, some of the regulatory things that came out. I never thought rate transparency and noise transparency was gonna kind of even pass. Yeah. Um, you know, surprise billing, good things, smart things, really hard to execute on. Totally. Uh, so it's so hard to look more than a couple of years forward in this industry because it changes pretty rapidly. Still bullish on payer provider collaboration, the stuff I talked about earlier today. Been trying that for six, seven years. So I'm hoping this will be the year that we push it over the finish line on it. That's awesome. All right. The fun question with the Christmas tree in the back, and this will probably air after that, but um, I always love asking dads this question because Christmas is this odd time for us, right? And you're a dad. So what do you want for Christmas and what do you think you're actually going to get for Christmas? <laughs> oh man, that's a good question. Uh, what do I want for Christmas? I don't know. I don't, I mean... There's not a lot I need. It's not for a material thing either. It might be world. Yeah, maybe a quiet afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, yeah, that's probably what I, I'd like. Just some some time to time to, to make. Oh, so, but, awesome! Yeah, my kids are a little older now, so it's not not quite as chaotic, and they don't want to they don't want to see me as much anymore. So yeah, what do you think's coming under the tree for you? Do you have any idea or any any hints or thoughts? Or I really don't. Uh, there's there's probably a few imaginary boxes under there. I haven't checked to see if my name's on any of them yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know. It's a it's a crapshoot for me every year. I'm an outdoors guy, so I I can't probably. 30, 40 days out of the year, I wrapped quite a bit. So there's usually some element of camping things underneath there, which my family's got me wired pretty good. But um, otherwise, it's it's interesting. Brad, uh, this was awesome. Um, I hope uh, you enjoyed it as well. I think, um, you know, we talked about uh, pair collaboration and we talked about Banner's approach to the market, what you guys are doing and navigating kind of the financial storm. We talked about how to meet the patient as payer and provide a frictionless environment. How do you keep your staff? how to leverage technology like robotic process automation and lessons learned too. I think it was great. Um, again, I'm Jonathan Wick. Uh, this is Brad Tinerman. This is the Rethink Healthcare podcast. I really thank all of you for listening in today and uh, have a great, great rest of your afternoon. And here's to 2023. And I hope that uh, you can learn some things from this like Banner and have a, a great financially prosperous year. And Brad, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Jonathan. It was, it was fun. All right. Thank you so much.